read to us from today's scripture. The passage of scripture we're looking at this morning is taken from the New Testament book of Revelation, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as we have uh, mentioned a couple of times already this morning, and we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Revelation, in chapter 5. Revelation is not typically the first book that most Christians think of when they think about Christmas time and the Advent season. It's not the first book I would have thought of either, until I started studying it in Advent time. It turns out Revelation 5 is a fabulous way to kick off the Advent season. And here's why. Here's why. Have you ever felt, uh, and I do want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 5 if you're not already there. Uh, And as you're turning, let me just ask a question. Let me kind of frame where I think this chapter is taking us as readers this way. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Now, if you're uh, with us this morning and you're not, don't consider yourself a typically uh, or very religious person, Uh, maybe you can relate to this. 
Uh, for a lot of people who do not believe in God or don't choose to think of themselves as religious people, this is a very significant issue in their thinking. You can look at the world around you and say there's so much awful things that go on, so much evil that seems to go unpunished, or to use the Bible's language, so much sin that goes undealt with, that it's hard to believe that a God, the God of the Bible, is even there. Or if he is there, he certainly doesn't seem a lot of times to be taking much interest in what's going on down here. Maybe he's just left us to our devices. But of course... That thought process is not restricted to those who don't consider themselves to be religious. If we're honest, every one of us who calls him or herself a Christian has had to face the question, or maybe we've chosen to try not to face it, but the question is there. Somehow, someway, do I really think God is there? And if I really do believe he's there, do it, does, it, does it seem like he cares? Does it seem like he's involved? Or has he simply abandoned us? Maybe like many people around us, we look at the state of the world around us and we can find numerous things that just seem to be a a heinous um, affront to the glory of God, and yet they continue. It's as if God just lets such evil things continue. Is he there? Or maybe it's not the great things of the world. Maybe it's just the circumstances of my own life. No matter how faithful I try to be to God, no matter how much I pray, My problems remain. My situation even worsens. Is God there? Has he abandoned me? This is the chapter that's at the center of this early part, or the question rather, that's at the center of these early chapters of the book of Revelation. We mentioned last Sunday when we were looking at Revelation chapter 4 that chapters 4 and 5 are connected. They're really kind of one uh, setting. Chapter 4 kind of sets the stage, and we looked at that in the vision that the Apostle John received of of heaven as a throne room of God. And then in chapter 5, this is where the drama takes place on the stage that has been set. And we start that look at this drama where the scene sort of describing this this vast picture of heaven and and God the Father on his throne and all these various angelic beings. And if you recall from last week, this thunderous uh, tempest storm and this vast turbulent ocean that, that all of which separated John, who sort of represents us, the human beings that are reading this, all of that stuff separates us from God. God is high and he is lofty, he is holy, and he is unapproachable. Well, that was a big view. Now, Revelation chapter 5 starts by narrowing that view. The, the, the focus zooms right in, back onto the throne, and not only to the person who's on the throne, but specifically to something that is in his right hand. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, that object turns out to be a scroll. It's rolled up and it is sealed with seven seals. The picture on the screen is kind of a modern recreation of what such a first century scroll might have looked like back in the day. This is made of papyrus reeds like they would have made scrolls back then and sealed up with wax seals. The image is one that uh, the first readers of the book of Revelation would have been very familiar with. A scroll sealed up like this, especially when held in the right hand of a king who is sitting on the throne, uh, represents kind of an an edict uh, of the king or a law. This is a decree of the king. The words in the scroll contain the will of the king, which has the force of law in the kingdom for all the people. Very similarly, it could be the last will and testament of a rich person or a powerful ruler such as a king. 
which is, again, a very similar idea. It contains uh, his uh, purposes for the disposition of his power and his wealth after his death, but it's all sealed up. You don't get to see what's in the scroll until the person has died, and then as part of the, even in the first century, they had probate, believe it or not, as part of the process, the uh, seals of the will, will would be slit or cut, and the will would be open, and then that had the force of, of law. The, the um, goodies would be dispensed according to what was written in the scroll. In fact, um, theologian Don Carson notes that the Roman emperor Vespasian died and had a will and a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. So this is not something that the Apostle John is just sort of making up or it's a a new idea. In fact, Vespasian had died only about 15 years before Revelation was written. So when the first readers saw this image of this scroll sealed with seven seals, they would have immediately understood what this is. This is the will of the king of the universe. This is his law. He's going to execute his law on the earth. And that's a good thing. Because when God's purposes for judgment and redemption are spread out over all the earth, that's when life wins. Judgment and redemption, they're two sides of the same coin. God will judge evildoers and he will stop evil, and then redemption, he will remake the world into the beautiful whole place that he's promised to make it and that we all long for. That's what's in this scroll. So when the seals of this scroll are slit and God's will goes forth, God's people have much to look forward to. Now that leads, though, to the drama. Here's the problem. Now that we've zoomed in on this scroll, the problem is that there is no one found who can open it. Here is the tension that's introduced into the vision. This mighty angel, he's big, he's loud, he has a booming voice, and he stands there and he shouts out to the entire universe. Uh, It must have been a really booming voice. (laughs) He says, who is worthy to come take this scroll out of the hand of God the Father, God Almighty, this powerful holy being we saw described so vividly in chapter 4 last Sunday. Who's worthy to come take his scroll from him, slit the seals, open it up, and start to dispense his will on the earth? But no one is found. No one, the Bible says, in heaven or on earth or under the earth. No one in heaven, no angelic beings, even these crazy, powerful, intimidating angelic beings we saw described last Sunday in chapter 4, none of them can walk up to God and just take the scroll out of his hand. No one on earth, there's no living person, no, no emperor, no priest, no religious leader, no powerful person, no holy man can walk up and take the scroll out, and no one under the earth, which is kind of a first century way of referring to the abode of the dead, like we would say the grave today. In other words, nobody who, who had once lived can do this. No past person. You could go back to Abraham. You could go back to Moses. I mean, come on, Moses, the guy saw the burning bush, right? He heard the voice of God. He, he you know, had 10 plagues that were done by God through him. He, he held up his hands and, and the waters of the Red Sea parted. I mean, here's a miracle worker. Moses can't go take that scroll. King David. King David, whose very throne is an emblem or a picture of the messianic throne of God's Messiah. David can't walk up and take that scroll. Elijah, the great prophet who heard from God and performed miracle after miracle, including raising the dead. 
Elijah can't take that scroll. These guys are all dead and gone. No one can take the scroll. And just before we move on, there is a point here. It's one most of us as Christians probably already understand, but it's worth reminding ourselves of or allowing the Bible to remind us of. No person, no pastor, no priest, no pope, no politician, no person can bring about God's purposes on the earth. Nobody can do that. No miracle worker, no preacher, no one can be trusted with your ultimate hope for God's purposes. God has invested the doing of his will in no angel and no human being on this planet. And so our ultimate loyalty and our ultimate hope should never rest in a priest, a pastor, a politician, a pope, or any person. We naturally develop a level of comfort with certain leaders, and we form trust with people and, and groups and ideologies that we identify with and we see truth and wisdom in. And that's, that's not bad. That's a good thing. It's good that we come to trust trustworthy leaders and follow leaders. That's by God's design. But none of them save us. None of them save us. And for Christians who are always conscious of living in this world while also conscious of having one foot in the next... That puts us in a position of going through this life never really feeling too despondent should our leaders fail us, which they inevitably will because they're human, or should our ideas and our side lose. That could be discouraging, but it should never make us totally despondent because our hope isn't in leaders or ideas. By the way, it also works the other way. We should never feel too exultant or too elated when our leaders are succeeding or our ideas are prevailing because we don't put our hope in those things. No one is found worthy to open the scroll. And that leads us to John's response. John is crying. John is crying. This is the first time he sort of inserts himself into the vision that he is seeing and we're sort of seeing it through his eyes. Well, now he's, he's part of the action. As he is watching the scene, as he's watching this angel ask for who's worthy, and nobody is found to respond, it says he's crying. And this is not like a, oh, bummer, man. Get a little misty-eyed. He says he's weeping loudly. He is sobbing. He's heaving. Rivers of tears pouring down his cheeks quite a reaction. I mean, this guy is struck. He is moved. He is devastated emotionally because no one can open the scroll. What's the big deal? Really? I mean, this scroll is probably important, but why is he reacting so strongly? He's sobbing uncontrollably because no one anywhere in the universe being able to open the scroll means that God's purposes for judgment and redemption of the world are sealed up. And as long as they're sealed up, they'll never happen. Again, think of a last will and testament. All the instructions are there, but as long as the person who wrote the will is still alive, it's sealed up and nothing's going to happen. 
It's not until the appropriate time, until once they've passed away, that all of a sudden the will becomes activated, if you will. God's will for the world here is pictured as sealed up and deactivated. God's promise to judge and make things new is on ice, as long as that scroll is sealed up. If that scroll is not open, then God's people will not be redeemed, and the wicked will not be judged. And so John weeps, and he weeps on behalf of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Remember that? Just a couple weeks ago that we looked at those as a church. Seven very real churches in history in uh, what we now call Asia Minor, or the modern-day nation of Turkey. Uh, Back then, it was part of the Roman Empire. There were seven churches that the book of Revelation was originally addressed to. And those seven churches really represented all other churches that were around in that day, and really all churches since. Here we are as churches serving God and his purposes and waiting for his ultimate redemption. And what was God's message, message to those seven churches? Well, some of them he told, repent of your sins. Others, they didn't need to repent. But there was one thing that was told to all seven of them. Endure. Endure. Stay faithful. He says, you're seven different congregations full of people who love Jesus, but you're in a world that does not love Jesus. And all of these churches, to differing degrees, were facing direct persecution. They were having to pay a price for their commitment to Jesus Christ. They were having to pay the price of social ostracism. They were having to pay the price of a family rejection. That's a deep wound to bear. They were having to pay a financial and economic price in some cases because the doing of business was bound up with the worship of pagan gods and they refused to do it. And in a few cases, they were paying the price of being thrown in prison And in a couple of cases, even being killed because they were Christians. And the message to God, to all of those churches is, keep paying the price. Pay it over and over again, every day, and don't waver on your faithfulness to Jesus. Why? Because one day, God will vindicate your faith. One day, he will make all things new. One day, it will all pay off. And you will realize when you get there to heaven that any price you paid on earth, it seemed so overwhelming at the time, it's like nothing compared to the glory that God is going to give you. That was God's message to the churches. Now, here's the problem. That glory that God was going to give them is all bound up in this scroll. And the scroll is sealed. God's purposes are on ice. If this scroll is not broken, then all the suffering of everybody in those seven churches will be for nothing because evil will win. Every Christian at some point faces doubts about whether God will come through and make good on his promises. Maybe no matter how faithful I stay to Jesus, my illness gets worse, my family gets more distant, my income gets more sketchy, And I don't want to minimize those things at all, because those are serious hurts. But there are even deeper forms of persecution faced by our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. They are abused. They are imprisoned. They are forced to flee their homes. They are made refugees. And some of them, even today, are still killed for being Christians. Is it all for nothing? Has God abandoned them? 
Or is he so lofty and kind of distant, you know, this chapter 4 vision of God that was revealed to us that he's so holy and separate? He's just said, forget it. I've left you guys to your own devices. The world is a mess. Go ahead and just rot in the consequences of your own sin. I'm above all of that. John is weeping because if the scroll isn't opened, none of it matters. So how is the tension resolved? Fortunately, the tension is resolved because as he's weeping, in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is someone At long last, just when John started to despair that God's purposes will never be fulfilled on the earth, one person is found, and he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There are many echoes back into the Old Testament here, including Genesis chapter 49, where the Israelite tribe of Judah was promised that a ruler and a king would emerge from it. The Messiah was going to be from the tribe of Judah, and he's pictured here as a lion, He will be a ruling, the king of the beasts, a mighty and a powerful ruler, as the image of a lion would indicate. And so the lion of the tribe of Judah, God's long-promised Messiah, is the one who can take this scroll and open it. So there is hope. And John looks up from his weeping, expecting, no doubt, to see another picture of Jesus. Because that's who the Messiah is. Maybe like the one that he saw back in chapter 1. Or perhaps to see some kind of an image like a a powerful lion that's sort of representing Jesus who's going to fix this problem. But it's interesting. What does he look, what does he see when he looks up? He sees not a lion, but he sees a lamb. Verse 6. Between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. I thought we were looking for a lion. Lion sheep. A little bit of a difference, wouldn't you say? Here's the big powerful roar. Bah. <laughs> what is that thing doing there? But that's right in the middle of it. it. It raises up from within the midst. It's on the other side of the storm and the sea. It's right in the midst of all of these different ranks of angels. All of the stuff that was separating John from God, the lamb, is right in the midst of it. He's right there at the throne. And then it gets really weird because the lamb has been slain. He sees this this lamb. It's standing there. It's alive, but its throat is slit and the wound is gaping open like it ought to be dead. It clearly had been killed. But somehow it's still alive. The imagery would immediately have taken the original readers back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. This is a sacrificial lamb. Lambs were defenseless. They had no power. They had no ability or smarts to be able to outwit their captors and save themselves. And lambs were often brought to the temple and put on the altar and killed with a blade. And the blood drained out of them and their lives were given as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of people. This was clearly a sacrificial lamb who had already been killed And yet here he is, standing very much alive, still bearing the mark of his death. And then it gets even more weird. This lamb had seven horns. I don't know much about livestock, but I don't recall lambs ever having any horns. 
This is not an elk or a moose. (laughs) But this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And once again, we're reminded that we are seeing a, a vision of apocalyptic imagery. This is a certain type of literature that exists in a few places in the Bible. This is one of them. Most of the Bible's not written this way. This part is where the point is given, uh, is, is gotten across by showing us these symbolic images, these seven horns and seven eyes on this lamb who is all really just a representation of Jesus. That's the literal reality to which this picture is pointing. It's Jesus Christ, the son of God. We'll get there in a moment. But what does the imagery of the horns and the eyes mean? Horns were a typical way of referring to the power of kings. Um, The power of of wild animals was often seen to either be in their fangs or for horned animals in their horns. So horns in apocalyptic literature over and over again are referring to the power of kings. Seven of them, seven again, a symbolic number back in that time of, of being a full, complete. This is a completely powerful lamb, which is kind of weird. And that's the point. And what's more, he has seven eyes, which it says are the seven spirits of God. We've met those guys before. We will meet them again later on in Revelation. In other words, he sees everything. Eyes are almost always in apocalyptic literature, an an image of, of being omniscient, of seeing everything. This lamb sees everything, and he rules everything. Do you see how the metaphors are all mixed up? And it's on purpose. What's the point? The ruling lion is the sacrificial lamb. And the sacrificial lamb is a ruling lion. The one who appears so meek and who is slaughtered actually has the power to walk up to God's throne room, take that scroll right out of his hand, slit the seals, and start to unfold God's purposes in the world. And what this means is that Jesus is the bridge between the unapproachable God and the very sin-cursed world that we live in. There's at least two ways in which this passage paints Jesus as a bridge. We'll look at each of them briefly in closing. First, Jesus is the bridge between the world and God's purposes for the world. He is the bridge between the world and God's purposes for the world. The songs of praise at the end of this chapter, they take up half the chapter, and they say a lot about what we're to understand about this image. What's going on here? The songs sort of interpret the action that just took place on the stage, as it were. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Remember, this was against the backdrop of nobody having been found to be worthy. No one in the universe, human, angelic, dead or alive. He is praised as being the only one who is able to bring about God's purposes of judgment and redemption. God has promised to judge every act of evil. Thank God. And to to, to right every wrong, to make it right. Furthermore, he has promised to heal every wound, to restore perfect life, justice, wholeness, and goodness to the earth forever. That's the story of the Bible. That's God's promise. And what this image is telling us is that God will make good on his promise when the reign 
of the Lamb is fully consummated on the earth, which will take place at His second coming. God is saying, I will make good on every one of those promises when Jesus Christ is installed as earth's king and he is reigning over this world. He is the bridge between God's purposes of judgment and redemption for the world and the world itself. He will rule on his Father's behalf. And that is the day we look forward to. This was the great hope for those seven churches. Remember, the entire book of Revelation is one book. What happened in those first seven churches relates directly to all these visions that come next. These visions are to meet their need and answer what their needs are for following God faithfully and our needs too. How does this vision answer their need? The rule and the reign of the Lamb of God was their hope. Did they feel abandoned by God? Yeah. Let's go back to that question we started this morning with. Do you and I sometimes feel abandoned by God if he's there at all? Sure. Sure they did. They felt abandoned by God. So what is the Bible's answer to that? How do I know that God has not abandoned me? Like, how can I know that? Do I, do I trust an internal kind of relational or intuitive or emotional sense of his presence? And if I, can, if I can pray and I can feel God with me, then I know he's with me. Oh, by God's grace, sometimes he gives us a powerful and emotional sense of his presence. And it's a sweet thing when it happens. But is that how I know he's with me when I have that experience? That's not what the Bible says. Do I know he's with me when... My circumstances get markedly better. I've had this problem. I've been praying. I've been praying. I've been praying. And it's just gotten worse. So now God must not be with me because my circumstances are getting worse. Or on the flip side, I prayed about this thing and prayed about this thing and everything came through the way I wanted. Yay, praise God. God must be with me, right? Because things are going well. Do I know that God has not abandoned me based on how the circumstances of my life are going? You know what the Bible's telling us? I know that God has not abandoned me for one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus Christ hung on the cross. That's why. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. The lion is pictured as a slain lamb. The ruler of the universe is one who has sacrificed himself for us. And that's how we know God has not abandoned us. I know that God loves me for one reason only, because Jesus Christ hung on the cross. I know that every sacrifice that I make to serve God is worth it in spades, even if I can't see the payoff now, for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus Christ hung on the cross for you and for me. And I know that my faith in Christ will be vindicated and will be worth it in the end for one reason and one reason only, because Jesus Christ hung on the cross. For us. 
The slain lamb is the bridge between God's purposes for the world and the world. And it is in him and his rule and reign that his people put their hope. God's purpose for redemption, that is eternal life, and judgment, the righting of every wrong, will be accomplished because Jesus is who he is and did what he did. That's the Bible's answer to us. And it is him in whom we place our trust. That leads us to the second thing. Jesus is not only the bridge between God's purposes for the world and the world, but on a more personal level, Jesus is the bridge between God and me. Between God and me. Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross is the means by which sinful people are brought back into relationship with God. That's how the turbulent sea can be crossed. That's how the ranks of intimidating angels can part like the Red Sea so that I can come before the very throne room of God. I don't have any worthiness to do that. Neither do you. John was stuck on the outside looking in back in chapter 4, and he was probably more sinless than you and I. That's where I belong, out on the fringes. I have no hope of getting close to a holy God, but through Christ, who himself is the bridge. I'd like to conclude this morning with a look at Romans chapter 8, which teaches the same lessons in far less symbolic language. Conclude with these verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, you know what the Bible is saying there? All things work together for good. We love to put that up on our refrigerators, right? (laughs) Write that in our notebooks. It's all going to work out. Well, maybe, maybe not. It depends on what you mean by all. Are all the circumstances in my life going to go well? Not necessarily. That's not what this is saying at all. You know the the good that the Apostle Paul, who's writing this in Romans chapter 8, has in mind when he says all things will work together for good to those who love God? He's talking about our eternal resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. It's all going to work out in the end, no matter how much unrighteousness or injustice I must suffer in this world for my Savior. So what is the path to get to that good end? Well, that's verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen to this. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers? The firstborn was the eldest child in an ancient household. They had all the inheritance rights. They carried the family name. But but he was still like your older brother. And the Bible here is saying that Jesus Christ himself, the son of God Almighty, plays that role with you and me. It's so crazy, I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't in the Bible. Jesus himself is worthy to walk up and take that scroll, and then you know what he does with us? He adopts us into his family. He says, you're my sister, you're my brother, so come right on up with me. You inherit my worthiness to come be connected with God the Father through his sacrifice for us on the cross. And then lastly, those whom he predestined, he called called justified, and we justified, he also 
glorified. How do I get to inherit the worthiness of Jesus? It goes back to that lamb with the slit throat. Because he died for you and for me. He made us worthy through his sacrifice. And so friends, all of our hope as Christians, all of our hope together as a church family for living not for this world, but for the next rests on the fact that Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And we can look forward to God's will being accomplished ultimately because Jesus Christ alone can take that scroll and break those seven seals. Friends, we've got a, a, a remarkable, a rare and a remarkable opportunity to celebrate that this morning as a church family. And that is through the sacrament of baptism. In just a few minutes, we've got four men who are going to be baptized right here in our worship service. And I'm going to ask them to come up here in just a minute. First, let me briefly just describe what baptism is about so that we'll all have an understanding of what we're about to witness because it is incredibly significant as God moves in the lives of people. Baptism is a one-time act that the Bible calls all Christians to undertake. In the act of being baptized, much is symbolized. It really comes down to going under the water and coming up. It really tells us two things the Bible tells us. First of all, it's a picture of washing, of being made clean. Uh, there were many uh, religions back in the day when Jesus instituted baptism that used ceremonial washings where they would physically wash themselves with water to picture how their sins were being cleansed. And that uh, symbolism gets appropriated into baptism. When a Christian is baptized, what we're saying is, Jesus Christ has washed me clean of my sin. Secondly, it is also a picture of death and resurrection. When we go down under the water and then come back up from the water, the Bible says that is a picture of Jesus Christ who died and went into the grave and then rose again to new life. And then here's what happens. When you become a Christian, you die to your old self. There's something you repudiate and you leave behind. You just say, the old sinful me is not me anymore. I want to live a new life for Christ. That is all pictured in baptism. Baptism does not save us. There's nothing magical or spiritual that happens when we get dunked underwater. Our faith in Jesus Christ is the spiritual magic that transforms our lives and cleanses our sin. And so these four men have all professed faith in Christ. And they're each going to take a minute and tell us briefly what they've repudiated and why they're here to be baptized this morning. And then we're going to baptize them together. So I'd like to ask uh, you four guys to come up, Kenton and Trevor and Timothy and Jason. Go ahead and come on up and just kind of line up here. In fact, let maybe come back here so you're a little more in the light. We'll get this out of the way. Come center stage here. And what I'm going to do is take this... Uh, come on over here, guys. I'm going to take this microphone... And uh, have you guys line up right here. And Kenton is being fashionably late. You're going to start for me. There you go. Each one of these guys is going to take just a minute. I know some of you know some of them and some of their stories, but none of you know all of their stories. And so we've asked them to take just a couple of minutes to give us the highlights of how God has moved in their lives and what he has led them to repent of and how they're placing their faith in him. So I'm going to ask them to do that. Just go one right on down the row, and then we'll get you guys wet. All right? Hey guys, I'm Kenton. Um, I've always lived in a house where Christianity is prevalent and it's there. And my dad's a pastor, so of course I'm going to be a Christian too. But I, I did it when I was really young. I accepted Jesus. And um, yeah, I, did, I don't remember that at all. And so later on in my, my uh, years, like 2010, I, I believe, I accepted him again and rededicated my life. And yeah, that was really good. And then... 
last year, 2015, I went on a mission trip to Haiti, and that really opened my eyes, and I was able to see that those people in, in Haiti have Jesus and what it really means to have Jesus and be a light in the world, and they were a light to me. And so, yeah, that really influenced my decision to get baptized today, and I'm excited to do it. All right, thanks, Ken. Hi, my name is Jason. My life before Jesus is one of sin and self-reliance. I was a single guy. I had my brother and my father to live for, but I never grew up with anyone around me religious, so I never knew any other way. Then one day I met someone who changed all that. Her name was Amy, and we had started dating. After a while of going to church and hearing the words and its meaning, I started to feel more connected. Later down the road, Amy and I were married and had a son. I came to the point where I wanted to be a good role model for my son and for my wife. Realizing that life is a about others, not just for me, and life is about living for God. But God is terrifying, so I want to learn how a sinful person like me can relate to a holy God. The gospel is that Jesus sacrifices the bridge between us. I pray to Jesus to enter my heart, and I believe that baptism will allow me to show that Jesus washes away the old me and to rise clean and through faith in Jesus to be a better person. Hey guys, I'm Trevor. Uh, a long time ago, I went down a wrong path in my life. I decided to do my own stuff instead of listen to people. Um, and now, I just uh, kind of figured, you know, I have a family now, and I'm trying to go on a different path, and I want to follow God, and I want to go down a good path for my daughter and my beautiful wife. <laughs> and yeah, so that's why I'm doing it now. <laughs> Hello, I'm Timothy. Christ's story has uh, always captivated me, whether by Advent Candle, Station of the Cross, a solid expository sermon, or the people whose paths have crossed mine. Um, my devout mom, whom I've had countless heart-to-heart conversations with over the years, crystallized the gospel message to me that all mankind are sinners and are thereby separate from God, ultimately in death, but that Jesus, God's Son and the Messiah, gave his life as a sacrifice for my sin so that I can have eternal life with him. Another influential person in my faith journey was a Protestant high school friend who asked me if I'd ever accepted Christ in my heart as my personal savior. One night shortly after this question was posed to me, I did so. This is where my more general faith in Jesus took focus on the relational aspect of my belief as I began to break away from repetitive patterns in prayer and uh, focus on a more personal dialogue and more earnestly studied the Bible as Jesus drew me closer to him throughout my teenage years. The third person who provoked the deepening of my faith and personal relationship with Christ is my wife, Linnea, who has encouraged me to think critically about my faith and relationship with Jesus, to look at the mission field near at hand, and to further dig into the Bible. But really, the fourth and most influential person to have helped me turn to Christ is the Holy Spirit, speaking through Scripture, truth that resonates with my heart, mind, and spirit. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, he says, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Repentance and turning toward Christ as my Savior has helped me move from anger to forgiveness regarding my parents' marriage. 
which experienced trouble in my formative years. It has helped me to understand them both much more. Turning to Christ has helped me release my self-reliance, albeit slowly, as I've shifted from a capable person content in creative solitude to being a more present husband and father. It's helped me focus my creative projects more on God's glory and less on my experiences, seeking how I may best convey the gospel and the value and wonder I've discovered having a relationship with Christ through songs and stories that I write. Currently, I turn to Christ as Lene and I depend on him to guide us from an emergency housing situation through the process of purchasing our first home. Repenting of my sin helps me work on my marriage, being obedient to God's will when I would rather have my own way, which by default is entirely too selfish. Rather, I'm learning more each day how I can emulate Christ's sacrificial love. Recently, I realized that I need to take a step of obedience in baptism, publicly confirming that I'm a sinner, saved by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. As a sinner, repentance has brought me unexpected peace time and again. It is a peace I know does not originate with me, but is a blessing from the Holy Spirit. All right. Thank you, guys. So we're going to have you guys follow Jerry right back there. And what we're going to do is uh, we actually do have a tank of water. Those of you that have never been up here, it's pretty cool. These guys are lucky because it's even warm. It didn't used to always be, but we've upgraded recently. And so we are going to take uh, one at a time uh, the, the opportunity to baptize them and to celebrate as a church family those who are publicly professing to their church family that they, like so many of us, are trusting Christ for our salvation. God is worthy of that praise, and so feel free to celebrate as each person comes up out of the water. Let's do that.